welcome to the first episode of Twisted Talks. I'm Tanya. And I'm Josh. And today we are going to be covering the case of the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines flight MH370. It was a Boeing 777 that went missing in 2014, carrying 239 passengers. 227 were airline passengers, 10 were cabin crew, and we had the pilot and the co-pilot as well. So Josh, do you want to take it away? I will. So starting off, Flight 370 was a daily passenger flight between Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, and then the destination that it was going to would have been Beijing in China. Uh, clearance to depart Kuala Lumpur was given at 42 minutes past midnight. Uh, it was a clear night and the weather was calm. The date would have been the 8th of March 2014. Um, in under an hour, the plane is cruising at an altitude of 35,000 feet. And this is over the South China Sea. Um, at this point, the flight, flight 370 is told to make contact with the air traffic control in Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam as the aircraft is about to enter Vietnamese airspace. Now, excuse me if my pronunciations of some of these places and some of these names isn't the best. Yeah. <laughs> um, I tried to learn them in my research, but um, there's only so much I'm capable of pronouncing. <laughs> um, so apologies to anyone who I'm destroying their native tongue. <laughs> Um, so the flight controller in Kuala Lumpur says good night, and there is no sign that anything is out of the ordinary. Um, one minute and forty three seconds later, the aircraft abruptly disappears from radar screens uh, at Kuala Lumpur, Ho Chi Minh, and Bangkok. This form of tracking um, the flight's position depends on a signal that is emitted by one out of two transponders on board the plane. Um, the aircraft's disappearance would indicate that both transponders stopped functioning or that the system was deactivated manually by someone on board the flight. After this, all attempts to contact and find out the whereabouts of Flight 370 are unsuccessful. Evidently, the aircraft has disappeared without a trace. It's nowhere to be seen. Approximately four hours later, the flight was due to land in Beijing. But you guessed it, there was still no sign of the aircraft. Mm -hmm. uh, at this point, Flight 370 is officially declared missing. Um, and after this announcement, what would be the most expensive search effort in the history of aviation is about to begin. Now, initially, the search was focused around the area of the flight's disappearance, which is between the South China Sea and the Gulf of Thailand. Soon after the search, um, Air, soon after the search area was broadened after additional information provided by the Malaysian military. While the radar system used by air traffic control relies on the transponders that we mentioned on board the planes, the long-range military radar, however, doesn't. So the long-range military radar uses reflectance to track the position of aerial targets. So their radar revealed that after contact with Flight 370 was lost, the aircraft had diverged from its scheduled flight path with an indistinct turn to the right before taking a lengthy turn to the left. Flight 370 was now flying back towards and across the Malaysian Peninsula before taking a right near the island of Penang. It now continued heading northwesterly until it was out of the radar's coverage. So again, they couldn't see it again. 
Um, over the next few days, a multinational fleet of aircraft and vessels searched the Strait of Malacca, the Andaman Sea, and the Bay of Bengal, but there was still no sign of Flight 370. While the search was underway, investigators began to examine the aircraft SATCOM, which is the Satellite Communications Terminal. Uh, this is used to send and receive transmissions to and from the ground. Uh, before departing, the flight had logged into the SATCOM and had established a connection with a, round, with a ground station sorry, in Perth in Australia which would then continue to maintain a detailed record of any incoming and outgoing traffic between the ground station and Flight 370. Before the flight vanished over the South China Sea, everything had originally appeared to be working smoothly, but then at some stage during this part of the flight, the SATCOM link was disconnected, it was severed. Uh, whatever the reason, the terminal stopped responding. Three minutes after the flight had disappeared, over the Andaman Sea, the terminal requested to log back on to the network and the SATCOM link was re-established and it wasn't disrupted again until almost six hours later when it is believed the flight crashed after running out of fuel. Two attempts were made to contact the plane by way of satellite telephone in its last hours. Both calls were received by the SATCOM terminal which would then uh, route the calls to the cockpit and both calls went unanswered and um, when the ground station has not heard from the aircraft in over an hour it would transmit a signal to the terminal to confirm that it is still online this is known as an automatic status request now five automatic status requests were responded to by the terminal so <clears throat> excuse me these transmissions did not have any information pertaining to the whereabouts of the flight. Despite this, investigators managed to measure the distance between the satellite and the aircraft at the time of each status request, based on the length of time it took those transmissions to be sent and received. Um, this showed seven rings of feasible locations, taking into account various factors such as you know fuel consumption speed and other factors such as flight path analysis pointed to areas in the southern indian ocean to be the most likely origin of the final transmission from flight 370. this discovery then shifted the search effort this new search area fell inside the jurisdiction of australia therefore the australian government took charge of the search operation. Over the next few weeks, taking into account oceanic drift and improved estimations of the flight path, the search area was refined and, you know, uh, adjusted accordingly. Due to this, part of the ocean being so remote, it took six days just to get there. Aircraft and vessels covered more than four and a half million square kilometers of ocean to no avail. Wow. Like that's a serious amount. Yeah, of area. that's a lot of ocean. Um, Flight 370 also had two underwater locator beacons equipped with a battery life of around 40 days. In early April, nearing the end of the beacon's battery life, signals with a frequency and pulse like the signal emitted by the beacons was detected at depths of up to 3,000 metres. An autonomous submersible scanned the seafloor for weeks where the signals had been picked up 
but no wreckage was ever found. Now, an autonomous submissible would be, I suppose the easiest way to describe it, is something like a submarine, but okay. it's not man like there's no one in it okay, so, so it's like um, let's just call it a remote control submarine okay <laughs> <laughs> so right. like they're sitting up there with their remote control they're zooming so around like a drone almost. almost like an underwater drone okay. would probably be the best way to describe right. it That's interesting. um but as I said they didn't find any wreckage hmm. um nothing would be found um over a year and four months later until over a year and four months later on july 29th 2015 when a group of people were cleaning up a beach in reunion on the opposite side of the indian ocean when they discover a long metallic object covered in barnacles so whatever this object is being covered in barnacles obviously implies that it's been in the sea for quite a while it's been submerged you know yeah um so this object actually was quickly identified as a section of an aircraft wing called a flapperon. Um bit of a strange name, yeah. but I didn't, but okay. Um once inspected more thoroughly, it was clear that the flapperon did in fact belong to Flight 370. The discovery of the flapperon prompted several searches along the beaches and shorelines of southern East Africa. So first of all, I think it's so bizarre that a plane of that size carrying that many people can just goodbye vanish yeah like, it does still don't know where it is um but debris was in fact found washed up on various beaches and shorelines across southeastern africa some of this debris was later confirmed to be from the missing flight and at least 31 additional items of interest that have since been recovered and examined um out of those 18 of the recovered items were identified as either likely, highly likely, or almost certain to have originated from Flight 370. Um, only three of these items could be confirmed as being from Flight 370. 11 of the items were unidentifiable. Um, and on all of the debris that was found and tested, there were no traces of an explosion. There was also no evidence of fire, except for three small burn marks on one of the unidentifiable items. So we obviously don't actually know if this item was even from Flight 370. So it's hard to conclude going by the evidence gathered whether there was a fire or not, or something like that, because the one item that points to possible fire is not guaranteed to have come from that flight. Um, Now, Earth observation satellites were used to aid the search for debris, analysing the satellite imagery from March 2014, uh, which showed a number of images that seemed to show man-made objects floating on or just below the surface of the southern Indian Ocean. But the images were not sharp enough to see any identifiable markings, and despite multiple searches, this debris was actually never found. So... You know, there's that the satellite images, the debris that was shown on them, never really aided the investigation as far as I've found. Okay. Now, according to officials, the discovery of the debris tells us that the plane is not intact. And according to modelling of ocean currents, it is suggested that the plane likely crashed in the southern Indian Ocean near Western Australia, causing the debris to then be carried by the currents and washed up in Africa. Investigators say that because satellite data is consistent with a southeastern journey, the plane could not have crashed in Africa. 
it is speculated that a fire, accident or malfunction may have occurred, leading pilots to change course for an emergency landing. Um, now, this theory states that whatever incident may have occurred could possibly have led to a mass hypoxia event, which is a low level of oxygen, leading to everyone on board the plane falling unconscious before the pilots could safely land. And as a result, the plane would have continued on autopilot over the Indian Ocean until it ultimately ran out of fuel and went down. Now, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, or the ATSB, has stated in 2017 that based on damage to the debris recovered, um, flight MH370 entered the water at a high and increasing rate of descent, meaning the plane was almost vertical when it hit the water. And this tells them that the plane was free falling and the pilot was probably unconscious at the time. Now an area dubbed the priority zone, which would be what you spoke about earlier, the um, million mile stretch. Oh yes. Um, was, it was dubbed the priority zone based on this theory, was searched extensively in 2018, however nothing was found. And as of 2019, based on my research, um, this theory, the mass hypoxia theory, was still the official theory of the Malaysian government and the ATSB. Okay. And the only thing as well that I thought, that I, I remember seeing in my research, uh, mm -hmm. like while I was researching, I didn't save it or anything, but I saw something as well at some point, and I know I said this to you, I don't know, at some point when we were talking about it yeah. all. Um, in the the theory about the the way the plane would have made like you know changes in altitude or mm -hmm. the way like you know like the nosedive thing, yeah. like there is one source and I don't know how official it was or not, but said that apparently flight simulation showed that it wouldn't have been possible for it mm -hmm. to make such a See, that's sudden dive. But I wonder, does that mean did that research maybe mean that it wouldn't be possible to make? that sudden dive unless there was nobody controlling the plane if it was just going boom possibly because i did see um a chinese mathematician had done his little calculations you know i don't understand math. his xyz's yeah um had done his his calculations and according to him that is the only way that the plane could have hit the water in order for us to have the debris that we have because if it had hit at any other angle the plane would have splintered yeah so that's what i have seen um so it's kind of like you'd imagine if it had hit at any other angle mm -hmm. that it would have been floating on the top or more of it would have been floating on the top exactly and it would have more than likely been discovered the wreckage place site yeah. for example by now we would have or, it yeah. yeah and then we'll get on to this a little bit later mm -hmm. but just to briefly mention because i feel like it kind of relates to that then with that you'd wonder with what i saw about how apparently some sort of nose dives and things weren't apparently possible mm -hmm. if that were to be true um but yet the plane didn't splinter to leave as much of a wreckage it kind of helps with those conspiracy theories about some government or someone being behind it and then leaving bits of wreckage but taking the bulk of the plane yes it would fit with that kind of theory but yes. um like i said anyway you'll touch off of all that later I but know. i just wanted to mention it based on that specific thing while mm -hmm. i have it on the brain but um anyway so um the, the underwater part of the search um continued for years until it was finally suspended in early 2017 um, an American salvage company, though, known as Ocean Infinity, then resumed the search. But after over a year of searching, they also found nothing. Now, 
un- unless the final resting place of Flight 370 can be found, it may be impossible to determine exactly why it crashed because mm-hmm. there's just not enough evidence. Yes. And the day the flight disappeared, two of its passengers did raise suspicion as they boarded the flight with stolen passports, which obviously immediately prompted concerns of a hijacking. Um, however, after looking into this, investigators were unable to link those two men to any terrorist organisations, and they soon determined that the reason the two had travelled under false identities was because they were seeking asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's fair enough. Yeah. Um, similar suspicions were raised when one of the flight's passengers were identified as a flight engineer who may have had the necessary knowledge to take control of a Boeing 777. But, like, in regards to that, um, like, fair enough, there was someone on board the plane who wasn't cabin crew and wasn't in the mm. cockpit. How would one person. But, like, even regardless of on how one person could do it, I'm just like, are people who work for airlines not allowed to go on holidays or take a yeah, flight? Exactly. And as well, um, I know I read that the plane, the cockpit, um, was fitted with, like, anti hijacking doors and things. So, like, one person would not and you would have imagine, been able to hijack the plane. Yeah, exactly. If they didn't manage to get into the cockpit to do something like that, you would imagine if they, like, obviously knowing a Boeing 777. I love the way you say Boeing. Or if they did. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just like, Boeing. But, um, <laughs> but um, it's like, you know, if they were to try and hijack to other means, like, let's say, through panelling, uh, wiring underneath mm-hmm. the... Let's say that's possible, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming there is some sort of a way. But if it was, how would someone on board not be like, you know, an air hostess being like, oh, like, you know... hey, you can't do that. Go you know, like, cabin seat. crew, would they not notice? Or would a passenger yeah. not be like, that's a bit odd? Yeah. Like, you know, they're hardly going to be like, oh, look, it looks like he's gone at the wires. Would you like some orange juice? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> you know... But anyway, um, now Flight 370 did also carry some cargo. One of the items of cargo listed on the flight's manifest was a shipment of lithium-ion batteries, which prompted some people to suspect a fire might have broken out during the flight. If this had happened, it would not be the first time that an aircraft had gone down due to a fire caused by, specifically, lithium-ion batteries. Now... Of course, another possible source of ignition uh, would be an electrical malfunction. Um, flight 370's sudden loss of communication and its deviation from its scheduled flight path may have been a direct response to a fire. Now, mm-hmm. the two pilots um, could have turned back towards Malaysia to attempt an emergency landing at the nearest suitable airport, but no attempt to do so was ever made. Okay. Uh, instead, the flight continued going and stayed aloft for another six hours. Which would kind of fit with the mass hypoxia theory that everyone on board was unconscious and that the plane How was do you attempt a landing when you're, when you're out of it? Out, when you're unconscious, um, which would fit with the plane continuing to go until it ran out of fuel and then went down. Yeah. Uh, it is, however, more difficult to explain the changes in direction as the flight simulations show that the aircraft must have been under manual control for the initial left turn as the angle of the turn was beyond the limits of autopilot. But turns made following the initial left turn could have been either manual or automatic. Now, I suppose the first left turn being possibly manual, if I'm remembering the flight pack correctly, that was the initial like left turn as in heading back towards Malaysia. Okay, so, so that could have manually been done intentionally because of, as you said, a fire. fire. Yeah. Um, again, leading to the hypoxia 
and then, um, theory. Yeah, and then we can't confirm um, or deny that the rest were made but by then, the pilot yeah, or the it, it is possible that the rest of the turns and, you know, made could have been manual or could have been automatic that followed that. Going by the flight path we have from the official investigations, satellite mm-hmm. imagery and communications with the aircraft, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but although in order for autopilot to have made these course corrections somebody with the necessary knowledge would have had to have programmed it to do so. So then I'm kind of like, if we're looking at it from that point, because that wasn't initially the flight path it was supposed to take, because it was supposed to be going to Beijing, then I'm like, did they program it to do so, you know, after the first left turn? Because in case of a mass hypoxia event, but then again, if a mass hypoxia event happened, they're screwed anyway because they can't land the plane. Yes. So it's kind of like, what good is that? Would you not stay in manual because you have more control over a failing aircraft? Yes. I'm also thinking low oxygen tends to cause confusion. Um, So it's possible that maybe the reason it deviated from the flight path back to Malaysia could be the pilot and the co-pilot were out of it from lack of oxygen and just input things wrong because of that confusion and that like dazed sense of reality from not having enough oxygen supplied to the brain possible but then again we have to remember that that first left turn that originally put it back on the course that was kind of going off towards the other turns and towards malaysia was the manual one so that would have been a coherent decision yeah or coherent as coherent as possible possible, and given how long after that point the flight stayed in the air I find it hard to believe that a plane lasted in the air that long on fire, if it yeah. was already on fire. Now, maybe no, something malfunctioned yeah. and an alarm went off and then the fire broke out later, like, but they have... knew it was something that could cause a fire, so they were like, we need to turn around. Yeah, but the plane would have likely burnt out and before, just, you know, it wouldn't have lasted for the six hours. Exploded or dropped or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, the only other alternative is that, as I was saying, um, the aircraft was under manual control. So kind of bouncing off that another theory um, suggests that Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah which was the pilot of the plane deliberately crashed the plane to take his own life and as a byproduct the lives of his passengers and crew so after the plane disappeared media reports revealed that Zahari's wife and three children had moved out of their shared home and it was claimed that the pilot was seeing another woman and that this relationship was also troubled now, a fellow pilot and longtime friend and colleague has stated that Zahari was very upset that his marriage was falling apart, though his family has denied all claims of domestic issues. Investigators conducted 170 interviews and noted that the captain had not made any social or professional plans after March 8th, which is the day that the plane disappeared, though this is disputed by French journalist Florence Deschangy who says Zahari had made arrangements with his dentist to have a tooth crown refitted or repaired. It has been said that the police have considered the liability, potential liability, liability of everyone on board the plane. And they have said, should it be concluded that human intervention is involved, that the captain is the prime suspect. A flight path found on the pilot's home flight simulator was found to be similar to the path taken by the plane on the day it disappeared, with the plane taking a sudden southwest turn and banking over Penang, which is Captain Zahari's home island. But there is no proof that this path was plotted by Zahari himself. Now, I do have a direct quote from Wikipedia, which says, 
Former British Airways senior Boeing 777 pilot Simon Hardy told BBC News that the plane's route was probably very accurate flying rather than just a coincidence and noted that the aircraft's turn towards the northwest over the Malacca Strait allowed a clear view of the captain's home island of Penang. Hunt said, Someone was looking at Penang. Someone was taking a long, emotional look at Penang. The captain was from the island of Penang. It does a strange hook. In order to look at Penang, you have to turn left or right, get alongside it, and then execute a long turn. If you look at the output from Malaysian 370, there were actually three turns, not one. Someone was looking at Penang. However, Zahari's family firmly deny that he was suicidal. And that does make you wonder. It's like, okay, regardless of whether Captain Zahari was responsible or mm-hmm. not, who else w- would, you know, go, I'm assuming, so far out of their way or, to you know, or make sure to go at those angles that this, you know, person to look has at mentioned. His birthplace, you know, to look at it's strange. From. I'm assuming if there was anyone else on board that had the. that could have been a possibility to have been involved, mm-hmm. if they had had any you know, roots or connection to Penang that that would have been mentioned in some form of the investigation. Exactly. I've not seen anything have, else. It would have come up. Um, now, um, what I'm about to come um, come out with, I, I go, it's very <laughs> professional. What I'm about to come up with, come out with, all the one, uh, very much links up with what Tanya has just said in, and some of it might be kind of uh, a bit of a repetition, um, but bear with me. So... Several news outlets reported in late June 2014 that a special investigation had identified the flight's captain as a prime suspect. During a search of Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah's home, a flight simulator was discovered which supposedly contained a suspicious route that ended in the southern Indian Ocean. Whew, big breath, run out of oxygen. (laughs) At the time of this discovery... At the time of this discovery and the reports from the news outlets, there was no official acknowledgement that this route had been recovered from the flight simulator. A public report that the Malaysian government had released in 2015 also did not mention anything about the supposed recovery of the route, which I personally find a bit strange. Mm -hmm. Why would you leave that out? But in 2016, confidential documents relating to a forensic examination that was carried out by the Royal Malaysia Police in May 2014 were leaked to the media. And lo and behold, the leaked document showed that the route had been recovered from the captain's flight simulator and had also been thoroughly examined. Mm. So soon after this, the Malaysian government finally did confirm the existence of the simulated flight path. Suspicious. Exactly. And now, as you would expect, a lot of people see this as evidence that whatever happened to Flight 370 was premeditated by Captain Zahari. But the investigators say that that is not necessarily the case. The data that was recovered is made up of seven coordinates, two in Kuala Lumpur, two in the Strait of Malacca, one in the Bay of Bengal, and two in the Southern Indian Ocean, which does match up with some of, you know, some if not all of the flight on the night that it went missing. Um, And this data was reconstructed from a file that was automatically generated and saved by the simulation software um, a month before the incident. It is not clear, however, if the coordinates are from one flight session. 
it is possible that they are from multiple flight sessions, which would mean that each coordinate does not link up with all of the other coordinates. So, you know, it, we can't assume that all those coordinates go in a straight line from one practice session. He okay. could have had multiple practice sessions where he went from one coordinate to another one day, and then the next day he might have gone from one coordinate to another. He might have gone from one to two to three. Yep. You know, it doesn't mean it was all in the one flight It's not path. definitive. So it's not definitive. Uh, they can't prove that, you know... The they can't prove that this is definitely a premeditative route yeah. of what happened on that night. Okay. Um, so the Royal Malaysia Police concluded in the forensic examination that, quote, no activity captured conclusively indicate any kind of premeditated act pertaining to the incident of MH370, unquote. If the captain did steer the flight off course, intent on crashing it in a secluded part of the southern Indian Ocean, that is, then it is even more of a mystery as to what his motive would have been. Um, captain Zahari Ahmad Shah was 53 years old, married with three children, grown children now. His track record was spotless and he had over 18,000 hours of flight experience. That's like that's a lot of experience to make such a big error yeah and you know to have a clean track record i know sometimes people snap yeah. but you know i would have thought that somebody in that position to do something like that and take so many people down with them would have had some sort of record yeah you would think um you know even in terms of like mental health exactly. issues or anything like that um, the investigators also couldn't find any evidence of financial issues and his expenses before the disappearance didn't show anything unusual. Um, and as Tanya just mentioned there, the captain had no history of mental health illnesses um, and had not displayed any recent changes in his behaviour or lifestyle. So nothing was pointing towards him plotting anything. Um, Zahara was raised on the island of Penang, which leads some people to, as Tanya touched off of, to think that when the plane flew by there, it was to get a final view of his hometown. Um, and others believe a hijacking could have been motivated by politics due to Zahari being an avid supporter of a democratic opposition leader who had been sentenced to five years in prison only hours before Flight 370 took off. Now, some people also look to unconfirmed reports, as Tanya has already mentioned, I'm sure, of marital issues, mm -hmm. but this is contradicted by the official investigation and disputed by family members. Captain Zahari was a friendly and respected pilot and was passionate about aviation, which is evident by photos and videos he shared on social media. I believe he posts on YouTube as well. I think you mentioned um, that, yeah. The co-pilot Fariq Abdul Hamid was even less conspicuous. He was 27 years old and was due to marry a fellow, marry a fellow pilot. Uh, Fariq had nearly 3,000 hours of flight experience, 39 hours of that experience being in this type of aircraft. He also had no financial... Uh, mental or interpersonal issues of note and there was no evidence of any conflict between Zahari and Farik. Um, the only piece of noteworthy evidence relating to the co-pilot is his phone. Um, another rumour that had been circulated which was also confirmed by the leaked confidential documents was that a cell phone tower briefly established a connection with an iPhone 5S owned by the co-pilot. Um, as Flight 370 approached the island of Penang and it was not a phone call which is what had been reported by some media outlets but it was only an automatic location signal now the thing to me is I'm like obviously you're to put your phone on airplane mode mm -hmm. or you know turn it off so I would imagine 
you know, as far as I know, the main reason for that is it can just it can cause interference with the communications. So you know, the pilots might hear like a screeching or a buzzing noise, which can yeah. be quite off-putting, I suppose, when you're yeah. trying to concentrate. Um, so I would imagine with them being right up there, where all that equipment is, mm-hmm. that they would, of course, have, have their airplane mode or even their phone off, off probably with yeah. them. So, so obviously his phone would have had to have been turned back on or taken, taken off, off airplane of airplane mode, mode, which would be a very deliberate. Thing. In, yeah, like your phone. You're doing not, it on purpose. Your like. phone does not turn itself on. Your phone does not take itself off airplane mode. Exactly. That is something you have to do yourself. And that makes me wonder: Did he turn it on in, you know, in in an attempt to, you know, I suppose, give out a location or signal for help, or start to try and signal for help, and he didn't get to? Did someone else turn it on? If they did, why would they? Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I just it's just interesting. That's, that's, but that is strange. Yeah. There's nothing else really. There's nothing else much that I could find into that. Um, or about the co-pilot. Um, now, the final report um, released in 2018 by the Malaysian government could not put the loss of communication or diversion of Flight 370 down to a malfunction. They just said it just couldn't happen. It is believed that the aircraft and its systems had been manually manipulated by someone, but of course, due to limited evidence, the report does not explicitly state that the flight was hijacked. No real conclusion was reached. Now, the Malaysian and Australian government both agree that the flight crashed in the southern Indian Ocean, but it is impossible to determine the cause without a wreckage. Now, in 2018, a French team of independent investigators proposed an alternate flight path, um, where if an attempted landing was made on Christmas Island, then the crash site would be much further north than the region pointed out by the official investigation. Now, a surface, a surface search of this area was conducted around a week after the flight's disappearance, but the underwater phase of that search never reached this far north. So, you know, it is possible, I suppose, that they just didn't look they, far they enough. Didn't look, like, they looked far enough on the surface of the water, but, but could the they water. have found something if they looked under the water? Mm. But then again, I suppose that is only based on a theory mm-hmm. that if they had made an attempt of an emergency landing over there and mm. um, so I suppose maybe to them that's not enough evidence to warrant yeah. that much money going on a submersible again when they've already spent so much but yeah. is it not worth it to find that many that conclusion and those answers for, for those 239 families, families? Um, because that's the thing with case like this where there isn't enough concrete proof to say exactly what happened so everyone's just speculating it's all theories which I have a few Kind of more conspiracy, less solid theories here. But we do love to see it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the theories, not the disappearance. Oh, yes. Let's just clarify that. <laughs> um, so the first one, um, I briefly mentioned uh, French journalist Florence de Changy. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, earlier. So she theorizes that the plane was possibly shot down after attempts to reroute its course failed and that it has been covered up for years by various governmental bodies. Wouldn't be the so, first governmental cover-up. Exactly. So, Deshanji says the plane was carrying a shipment of electronic equipment to China that the US did not approve of. She believes that the plane held 2.5 tonnes of poorly documented Motorola electronics equipment. Which is, I do find that interesting her theory, and I'm assuming that's where she's getting it from, is the, the lithium-ion lithium batteries, batteries mentioned earlier, because that was also specifically 2.5 tonnes. Exactly, so it could be a link there. So, this 2.5 tons of Motorola electronics equipment belonged to the US. Now she claims that Beijing decided to make a bid for this delivery by redirecting the plane back towards Kuala Lumpur. 
um, which would explain that initial left turn back towards Malaysia. Okay. It was a left turn, yeah. Um, so Malaysia wanted to get it back home before it could um, reach Beijing and China. Yeah. Um, but that Beijing were trying to intersect. Um, yeah. But she also claims that then US authorities decided to intercept the flight before it could return by intercepting tracking technology so that the aircraft would disappear from radar screens. So two US airborne early warning planes okay. could have crowded MH370, blocking it, blocking its magnetic field. And it's quite actually interesting when you were, you know, when you were telling me about that because mm -hmm. I didn't know that that was a thing. I yeah. didn't know you could get another couple of planes to block a plane. Yeah. So I maybe maybe it's a certain type of plane, of course, probably. Uh, yeah. But so I would assume because they're US military planes, they have certain it's interesting technology. pieces of equipment, certain pieces of technology that would essentially once crowding MH370 would block it, block its magnetic field. But what I want to know actually and make it invisible. interesting about that mm -hmm. is it makes that plane invisible, but are those planes blocking the plane Just invisible? The US military I would assume, of course they are. I would assume they would be, they because otherwise it's sus. So then that would have made it invisible on the radar. She later said, and this is a direct quote, the shooting down could have been a blunder, but it could also have been a last resort to stop the plane and its special cargo from falling into Chinese hands, end quote. Interestingly enough, Blaine Gibson, who was responsible for finding that first piece of debris and supposedly many other pieces, has said that he received many death threats telling him to stop searching, so things like no plane, no Blaine, um, and that a friend of his received a phone call saying that Blaine would not leave Madagascar alive when he was searching in Madagascar. And exactly. And he also has claimed that he was followed and photographed by shady figures as he was searching for the debris. Yeah, like that's not normal. That's very no. strange. Um, and like, you know, it, it makes you wonder, like, why would... Like, okay, I know you'd have pranksters and stuff. But, like, I don't see why pranksters would go that far to send death threats to someone over a piece of a plane. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm, and if it was some genuine threat, who's behind it? Exactly. And ultimately, who's behind them? Who's sending these notes? Yeah. Who's making these phone calls? Who's taking these photographs? Who's following? Why? And then, like, even from the, the whole, you know, shot down as last resort mm -hmm. theory, like, I suppose you have multiple things there because it's like, was it shot? Could it have been shot down by the Chinese to stop it getting back to, to the US. Malaysia, or, to the, or could to it US have been stopped at, shot down by the Chinese because, as you just said, they realised the US were going to try and intercept mm -hmm. as well? Could it have been shot down by the US to stop Malaysia and China, there's or could it have been stopped down, shot down by Malaysia to stop China and the US? There's a lot of so like that's a lot of that's pieces to this. There's you know, players on the board. It's like that's three whole countries being like. Yeah, you might have shot down a passenger plane. Yeah. Not mm. sure, but, you know, you could have. Might have, might not have. We'll see. Feeling cute, might delete later. <laughs> um, next, I have the parachute theory, which I told you this for the first time last night. I had never heard it before. Now, this is... Brace yourselves. Oh, this is the most ridiculous theory I've ever heard. Um, oh, that was actually not a very good phrasing. Brace yourselves. Yeah. Um, so this theory was written by journalist Ian Higgins that's Ian with an E weird um, <laughs> sorry just think it's weird he eluded logic um, so Ian suggests that the pilot Zahari had a secret lover but due to his Muslim faith 
feared that it would be difficult to leave his marriage, which first of all, why are we bringing his faith into it? Yeah, like I think that's just ignorant because I'm like, being like, oh, he was Muslim, so he'd find it difficult to leave his marriage. Um, I don't think he'd find it any more difficult than hijacking a whole fucking plane, exactly. jumping out the side of it and leaving everyone else on board to disappear exactly. and just go about his day. Exactly. And not worry about being found when his face has been all over articles and news and media outlets for years. It's been eight years now. Make it make sense, Ian. So as Josh said, this theory posits that Zahari got fake IDs to assume a new identity, start a new life, depressurize the plane to either knock out or kill his crew and passengers before jumping from the plane at 3,000 feet with his little parachute, letting it crash into the ocean. And he is then supposed to have met his waiting lover on a boat and they sailed off into the sunset. Come out the fucking fog, Ian. Come on. Like... It's I don't just, even know how to, like, comprehend that someone could come up with that. Mm-hmm. It, it just sounds like religious bias to me, to be honest. Yeah. And then the rest sounds like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, Ian with an E, he's got a wild imagination. This is a real-life person, Ian, not Tom Cruise. Yeah, this is not Mission Impossible. Exactly. Um, so the next theory that I have, a British blogger who goes by Saucy Sailoress, we love it. Was vagabonding, which is a fancy way of saying wandering, through southern Asia in a sailboat with her husband and dogs. She claims they were in the Andaman Sea when she spotted what appeared to be a cruise missile coming at them. As it got closer, she says it became clearer and she saw a low-flying airplane with a well-lit cockpit bathed in a strange orange glow and trailing smoke. Saucy sailoress assumed that the plane was on a suicide mission against a Chinese naval fleet further out to sea. When she later heard about flight MH370, she drew her own conclusions. Now this one... It's a bit iffy. It's a bit iffy. Like, like I'm not saying she didn't see what she says she saw, but where does this Chinese missile theory come in from? Like, did she see a missile coming after the plane behind it? And I like, know. I can understand... Um, it's more that she initially thought that it was a cruise missile coming at them. But then as it got closer, she realized it was a plane. Now, I think this kind of ties in with the mass hypoxia theory because in terms of the orange glow and the trailing smoke, but then also if there was a fire or a malfunction on board, you kind of have to assume that the cockpit would not be well lit. Yeah, you'd imagine, yeah, there might be a bit of an orange glow, but it'd be foggy looking or, Mm -hmm. you know, smoky. But the reason I was saying in terms of why she assumed to try anything, though, is because did she not say after there that um, she assumed the plane was trying to get away from a Chinese missile? No, she... Or did I misinterpret You misinterpreted. She assumed that the plane was on a suicide mission against a Chinese naval fleet, so that the, the plane was essentially going to dive bomb against a Chinese naval fleet on a suicide mission. Right, so like... Uh, so to take out as much of, of the fleet. The fleet. And okay, yeah, yeah. So like kamikaze told. style. Yeah, kamikaze. Okay, I'm yep. with you now. Yep. Um, so there's that one, which they've searched the Andaman Sea and they've found nothing. Yeah, like that was um, that was part of the main original search exactly, and everything. Exactly, so like. I'm not too inclined to believe that it's there. But then I'm also like, what? What do, if if she said, claims she saw a plane, what, where's the plane she claims she saw? Exactly. Now, an Australian has been claiming for a few years now to have found the plane intact on Google Earth in shallow waters. But because he's a gatekeeping king, he refuses to share the location while he works on crowdfunding an expedition. Now, in terms of that... I find that quite funny, to be honest. Yeah, and Not I, as funny as the parachute, Ian. But, yeah. um. but I do think 
if it was visible on Google Earth, someone else would have spotted it by now. If the like he's make this person, he is it. He yes. is making out that what the basically the majority of the plane is visible on Google Earth. Or mm, well, he makes out that it's intact, which doesn't tie up with the debris that's been found. And like even like if it's intact and it's there and it's visible on Google Earth, tell me why they couldn't find it on satellite images. Because guess what, Google Earth is satellite, satellite images. images. Would you believe? Um, now, there are also claims that the plane has been found intact in the Cambodian jungle. In the jungle, jungle the mighty jungle. <laughs> that it has been seen landing in a river in Indonesia. That it flew into a time warp. Hello, manifest. Um, that it's been sucked into a black hole, which... That's just not realistic at all. Even a tiny black hole, if it got close enough to suck up the plane, the, the entirety of Earth would be sucked <laughs> yeah. into it. Um, Malaysia has also angrily denied a recent report, now I'm not sure how recent it was, I couldn't find exact times, that claims that Captain Zahari had been discovered alive and well, but suffering from amnesia in a hospital in Taiwan. Because, you know, when he parachuted from the plane and down to his lover in the boat, yeah. he must have hit his she noggin. Must have conked him over All that it. for nothing, didn't even remember what he was, who he was and who this bitch was. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you have it, Ian. Case closed. Well done, Ian Higgins. Ian with an E. Um, other reports say that the plane attempted to attack a US military base on Diego Garcia, but was shot down or I'm not going to lie, the first few times you mentioned that, like, not when like explained anything, but when you just mentioned the name of the theory, Diego Garcia, yeah. I was there like, oh, who's he? <laughs> I, I automatically assumed up until yesterday when See, I asked you, is it a place? Anytime I say Diego I Garcia, my brain thinks of Penelope Garcia from, from Criminal, Criminal Minds. Love that bitch. Queen. Love that bitch. Um, that, so, or that the plane, yeah, so that the plane had attempted to attack a US military base on Diego Garcia, but was shot down or captured, or that the plane, for whatever reason, had been instructed to travel and land there. When this theory was, was raised at the White House, Press Secretary Jay Carney said, quote, I'll have to rule that one out. Now that actually could link up a little bit with that, I can't remember her name, the French journalist. Because if the US managed to intercept in the sense of getting it to land there to take their technology back, mm-hmm. supposedly. Yeah. Um, and then, I don't know what they would have done with the passengers on board, what they would have done with the plane, but sprinkle some debris Maybe in the ocean, let it wash up on some beaches and it looks Maybe like a crash. Maybe Area 51, who knows? Oh, God. <laughs> um, two supporting elements of this theory were, like you said earlier, the co-pilot's phone pinging off the cell phone yeah. tower and the westward turn, both of which were apparently consistent with the flight heading towards Diego Garcia. But okay. Like, it's consistent with the flight heading towards a lot of places. Yeah, of course. It. Um, and like I, I imagine a lot of flights could start off going that way and then take turns maybe in towards Europe or even mm-hmm. towards here in Ireland. At, at yeah. some point, yeah. if they wanted. So exactly. there's a lot of places before America. Mm-hmm. Now, some people think that the plane was hijacked by North Korea and flown to Pyongyang. One Reddit user claims there was enough fuel in the plane for a flight to North Korea while remaining in cell phone range, which would account for the co-pilot's phones pinging off and the cell And I tower. actually read somewhere... Mm-hmm. Um, that a lot of that apparently a lot of people like um that when they heard the news of the flight, that apparently a lot of obviously terrified and scared and worried uh loved ones at home, you know, mm-hmm. loved ones of the people on board the flight, when they were trying to ring the phones, the phones rang. Yes. Now I did see something about that. That's the phantom cell phone theory. Um that is But I just think it's weird quite common. For the phone to ring. That is quite common. 
um, because even though the phone is destroyed, the SIM card might have been intact. But like, if I turn my phone off and you ring me, it goes straight to voicemail. That's a good point, actually. So as soon as the phone's off, or, or if the SIM's not in a phone, it'll just give you the whole, this number's not available right now, please try again down. later. We'll circle back to it in a minute. Um, where was I? Ah, yes. Um, so, the dic this is not the first time that North Korea has hijacked a plane. Apparently the dictatorship um, previously hijacked a jet in 1969. I couldn't find much on that, but apparently it happened. I had read that somewhere, but once again, I just kind of saw it as a statement. I couldn't find any mm -hmm. interesting... Now, others argue that Russian special ops agents could have broken into the plane through the electronics and equipment bay before accessing the first-class cabin and hijacking the plane. Theoretically, a well-trained hijacker could have used the plane's electronic system to fake satellite data and throw investigators off the trail, with the plane then heading north rather than south and entering Kazakhstan, where there are apparently runways and buildings large enough to hide a Boeing 777. It is interesting to note that Malaysia asked um, the countries of every passenger that was on the plane to run background checks. Of course, do you know, because if there's any information they should know about them, it could point to more suspects. Two countries refused. Which were? Russia. Okay. And the Ukraine. I'm a little bit, okay, given everything that's going on in the world right now, because I don't know much about Ukraine, but I am fine, I'm surprised that Ukraine refused, mm -hmm. but I'm not surprised about Russia. Yeah. Like, they sorry. Don't, they don't like to share information. Yeah. Um, and now the last thing that I have here, this is a direct quote taken from Wikipedia. In an article published on 18th of March, 2014, journalists Farah Ahmed and Ahmed Naif of the Maldivian, Maldivian, yeah, newspaper Haviru wrote. Oh, Moldovian, I think it is. It says Maldivian, Moldovian newspaper. Haviru is the name of the newspaper. Wrote several residents of Kuda Huvadu told Haviru on Tuesday that they saw a low-flying jumbo jet at around six fifteen on March eighth. They said it was a white aircraft with red stripes across it, which is what the Malaysia Airlines flights typically look like. Eyewitnesses from the Kuda Huvadu concurred that the jet was travelling north to southeast towards the southern tip of the Maldives. Um, they also noted the incredibly loud noise that the flight made when it flew over the island. Quote, I've never seen a jet flying solo over our island before. We've seen seaplanes, but I'm sure that this was not one of those. I could even make out the doors on the plane clearly, said an eyewitness. It's not just me either. Several other residents have reported seeing the exact same thing. Some people got out of their houses to see what was causing the tremendous noise too. Mohammed Zahim, the island councillor of Kudahavadu, said that the residents of the island had spoken about the incident. I find it interesting as well the person who said that they think, they don't think it was a... Um, a seaplane. A seaplane, because I'm not being funny, but if it's as low as everyone claims, you would be able to fairly distinctly tell the difference between a seaplane and a Boeing 777. Mm -hmm. I still love the way you say Boeing. <laughs> Boing. <laughs> Boing. But, um, yeah, so I find that interesting. Um, and I'm so, just like, if it was... Yeah, no, I don't know. I'm just like, if it was flying that low, um, so I just wanted it should have landed near there, find, should it not? It probably should have. I just wanted to find that phantom cell phone theory. Um, oh, now I had read a phantom cell phone theory, all right, which was mentioning ghosts and everything. No, this is um, nothing to do with ghosts. I've just pulled it up here on Wikipedia, so this is going to be a direct quote. Okay. 
Um, so some had speculated that the passengers were still alive but could not answer their cell phones, sometimes known as the phantom cell phone theory. Uh, this was based on early reports that family members of flight 370 passengers heard ringing as opposed to a busy or off signal or going straight to voicemail while calling the passengers' phones, though this was after the disappearance. Um, however, this was later challenged by Jeff Kagan, Kagan, a wireless analyst who in an email to NBC News explained that the network may still produce ringbacks as it searches for a connection, even if the cell phone has been destroyed, which it's kind of heartbreaking to think of the families like trying desperately to contact their loved ones that are missing and are still missing and the phone is ringing and that gives them some sense of hope yeah because like i was under the impression that phones couldn't ring if they were off like i know here mm -hmm. ours though maybe it's a you know maybe it's something that's more common abroad maybe because here when someone's phone is off or like god forbid you know something happened to one of us and the phone got destroyed yeah we wouldn't be contactable. It would go straight, it to, would voicemail. Go straight to voicemail. So uh, maybe it just depends on the, you know, your your location and your network and things mm -hmm. like that. But as far as I know, any other networks here mm -hmm. don't don't do, do that. that. Yeah. If you're out of range, you're you're out of range. There's, There's no ringing. Yeah. Um, you know, so um, I'm assuming that just depends on your country. I would assume so. Yes. Um, but that's definitely interesting. I didn't know about that. So I suppose it goes to show that the plane could have well crashed. The phones could have been destroyed or submerged. Mm -hmm. But still. For the network put the call through for a certain amount of time mm -hmm. to to ring until I suppose until the network can identify that there's no phone to contact or yeah, why not. The number was probably deactivated then eventually. Like yeah. Um, which actually with numbers being deactivated, a lot of time when numbers are deactivated, they're given out again. So it's yes. actually quite eerie almost to think. And it, and this applies to you know any case whether it's a plane going missing, um, you know any crash, uh, a murder that you know someone is more than likely going to end up. With, with the phone, phone number, number of a victim mm -hmm. of something. And I know that doesn't really mean anything, but you know, still, but it's just, to me, it's like, just a bit ooh. I know of someone who had a family member pass away um, very suddenly and they would still call the number and leave voicemails for that person. Yes. Which was something that, like, obviously made them feel better. Of course. And, made them feel and like that's something that a lot contact. of people actually do do that. Or they text the number. Yeah, and then, like, to think that after a certain amount of time that number goes to someone else and they can't do that anymore. Like, yeah. it is very sad. It kind of takes away that kind of, I suppose... That feeling comfort, of Comfort, I guess, or person. whatever you would say, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so that is quite um sad, mm. really. Um, but yeah, um, I suppose the moving on to I suppose the research that I have from this year. Yeah, okay, absolutely. perfect. Um, looking forward to hearing this. So this is actually very new. Um, I suppose uh, research or data. Um, that I found the main publications of it and videos referring to it seem to be all the start of this year. Um. February, March time. So, um, getting into that. Almost eight years since the aircraft vanished, Richard Godfrey, a respected British aerospace engineer and physicist, claims to have found the resting place of Flight 370. Richard has supposedly found it by exam examining amateur radio, also known as ham radio, frequencies from the night of the flight's disappearance. So now, just to clarify for people, because I had no idea what that was, um... Amateur radio signals or ham signals are basically the the frequencies that are given off by, let's say, walkie-talkies, radio stations, any form of kind of, as the name suggests, amateur radio mm -hmm. communications. Um, 
So they obviously send a frequency through the air and, you know, obviously we'll get onto that. Mm -hmm. uh, See, we'll get onto how it applies to this. All I know about ham radios from Stranger Things. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then I haven't actually watched that. Mm, you, you need to. Josh. Everyone's telling me, but I keep struggling to get into it. The first few episodes, just, I need to push through. Just push through. I'll Come get on. there eventually. Um, so he's short. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> so Richard is so sure of his findings that he believes that there should be one more search and that Flight 370 will be found. Out of all the experts that have worked on the Flight 370 case, Richard is the first and the only one to look at the signals of the ham radio operators on the night the aircraft went missing. Now, he discovered distinct disturbances that the plane caused to the radio waves when it flew through them. So, obviously using the flight path of the, you know, where the plane was said to have gone, mm -hmm. and I suppose radio signals that would have been passing over those areas at the time, and using schedules of all the aircrafts in the area to make sure it wasn't another plane he was picking up on. And I think it actually turned out that was kind of the only plane in that area. Okay. So it wasn't really possible to pick up on another plane, because any other plane around the area would have been there at a different time. Yes. Of at least, I think, an hour on the difference, I think he said. Okay, so he's, um, fairly, he's very... So fairly. he had identified that this disturbance um, that was caused, or break, I suppose you could say, in the frequencies mm -hmm. travelling, um, was caused by uh, Flight 370. Um, so, as I said, using this information, he was able to identify MH370. Um, he was also able to track its exact flight path into the Indian Ocean. Now, I don't know do I already have this down to mention in the moment, but I'm going to mention it now just in case I don't. Okay. So his flight path that he constructed from the radio frequency um, disturbances actually has more points on it than the original flight path that was made by the giant investigative team. Okay. Because I suppose the frequencies are more, there's more of them to look through. So like this is actually, his flight path is actually more accurate than the flight path generated by satellite communications okay. um, from the plane and Because there the was only a certain amount of pings on that. Yeah, whereas the pings on the radio frequencies are much more frequent. Okay. So it was easier to... Track it. To get a more frequent um, trail. Okay. Um, so as you would expect, when this claim was brought forward by Richard, it was met by some scepticism, but it also gave new hope of finding out what happened and giving some closure to the families and loved ones left behind. Danica Weeks, whose husband Paul was on the flight, says, quote, if this isn't worth another search, then I don't know what is, unquote. Danica also said, quote, there is not a day she doesn't think about it, um, that she promised Paulie she'd bring him home and she hasn't fulfilled that promise yet, unquote. And obviously that's very sad. Yeah. And I suppose all you want really is at this point, you know, you know that that's not going to be a happy ending. Yeah. But it's obviously... An answer. These families knowing actually what happened and getting some closure, and I suppose some sort of justice being served, or at least exactly. the public knowing what happened, like, as well as these family members, is important. They're not asking much. All they want is to bring their loved ones home and give them a proper burial in whatever way they see fit. Yeah. Um, and it's something so dignified. Something dignified, and it's so sad that that hasn't been able to happen for them yet. They're literally like they're asking at this point. They're literally asking for the bare minimum, yeah. and they're not getting it. Exactly, like it's awful. Um, now, for the past eight years, Danica has been an advocate for those who have lost loved ones um, on MH370, mm -hmm. on Flight 370. And Danica even arranged an audience three years ago with the then Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad. 
Now I'm going to play a clip um, here now to show you one of the things Prime Minister Mahathir said to Danica, um, I suppose before she left her audience or meeting, I suppose mm-hmm. would be the better word, yeah. meeting with him. Um, and I'm going to play that for you now. We intend to continue for as long as there is hope. And just to mention as well, the credit for that clip, it goes to 60 Minutes Australia. Um, I watched um, one of their bits to do with the Flight 370. Um, so that was one of my resources. Um, now, continuing on, uh, Danica said she left there thinking that they had made a mark and that they were going to get the steps they needed and that the Malaysian government were going to take action, which... I would think too, especially after what the then Prime Minister said, as you all heard in that audio clip. Mm -hmm. That to me sounds like, oh, you know, we're going to keep searching, we're going to keep doing our best to do what needs to be done and find that closure and find the Mm -hmm. wreckage. That's that's the impression I would have been under as well. Yeah, absolutely. That to me is... That's basically what he said. Yeah. (laughs) He said they're going to keep searching as long as there's hope and there is still hope. Exactly. Unless it was his wicked sick way of trying to say it's a hopeless case. You know what I mean. (laughs) But anyway, and then, as you um, assumed by what we were just saying, nothing happened and it was all just talk. Mm -hmm. So that's disgraceful. But anyway, uh, Richard Godfrey's discovery has given Danica a new sense of hope. Danica believes after doing her own research into what Richard has come forward with that it does look promising. The flight path Richard came up with using the ham radio frequencies from that night mirrored the already known satellite tracking of Flight 370. One difference between the satellite tracking and his method of tracking is that Richard's data provides a lot more detail about the aircraft's route into the Indian Ocean. Richard believes he can narrow the search down to a 300 kilometer square area. Like, that is a tiny area compared Compared to what was it, four and a half million I said earlier? Like that's that's huge, that's and then three hundred kilometers compared to that is nothing. So like, anyway, I'll just continue on because <laughs> yep. what I'm it'll mention anyway. Um, now this area does include some of um, some areas that has already been like parts of it have already been searched in the I suppose official search, um, but it also includes um, an area that has never before been examined. So, due to his research and what it shows about the flight path taken by Flight 370, Richard does indeed believe there was an active pilot for the entire flight and that the flight path certainly wasn't a straight line. Mm -hmm. According to Richard's data, the aircraft entered a holding pattern for 20 minutes during the flight. Now, a holding pattern is a path maintained by an aircraft while it's awaiting permission to land. And he says that to him this is strange, like it's a very strange thing to do when you are trying to lose an aircraft in the remotest part of the Indian Ocean. Now, there are theories that during the time the plane was in a holding pattern, which I'm sure, as we said, was about 20 minutes, um, the captain could have been communicating with the Malaysian government, he could have been checking if he was being followed, or he could have even been taking time to decide where where to go from here, what now. Um, Now, in terms of communicating with the Malaysian government, I guess that's where conspiracy theories can come in, Mm -hmm. because it's like, would it have been communicating with the Malaysian government as in, you know, maybe he had plans and they were trying to talk him down and they haven't brought, maybe they haven't brought that news public because they failed. Yeah. And because they're trying to Um, not have that be the prevalent theory. Yeah. Because as I said earlier, um, their official theory, as far as I know, is still that it was a mass hypoxia event. But like we said... 
if there was a fire or a malfunction or some kind of incident, it's very unlikely that the plane would have continued for that six hours. It probably would have gone down much sooner. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I read that a fire broke out on a plane while it was still um, on the ground. There was no passengers on board. And it took 90 minutes for firefighters to extinguish the fire. So, and there was severe damage to the plane. So you would have to imagine that the plane if there was a fire it would have gone up quickly and it would have gone down a lot sooner yeah um and as we said those scorch marks on that bit of debris that can't definitively be said that it's no from because NH it could be from anything exactly it could be from another it could even be from a boat exactly depending on what type of debris it is but again mm-hmm. it's unidentifiable and i don't know whether that means it's unidentifiable in also the sense that they can't exactly tell what it is mm-hmm. or that it's unidentifiable in the sense that also obviously they can't tell if it's from flight 370 yeah. But also, I would think that there would be much more damage, a lot more charring than just three scorch marks. Than just three marks. scorch marks, yeah. Um, so and then, like, I find it as well interesting because, like, it just goes to show how many, like, conflicting stories and researches are, and even, um, I suppose, closed um, documents. Because, mm-hmm. like, the one you've been, um, the research you were looking at was saying about how the Malaysian government's theory is the hypoxia. Whereas the one I've been looking at, which is apparently supposed to be from the, um, the official Malaysian government's 2018 report, which was supposedly the final one, mm-hmm. they're basically saying that it was manually done, but they're not saying it. Yeah. As in they're saying it was manually done, that that's the only way it could have been done, but they refuse to determine that as the cause because mm-hmm. they don't have enough evidence to definitively close the case, I suppose. And you can probably hear one of the dogs in the background. And yes, he barks like a seal. <laughs> he does. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he'll relax in a second. But it does seem that the most likely explanation is a mass murder-suicide. But again, without the wreckage, nothing is definitive. You can't say definitively unless you kind of have... I, I don't even think you'd need to have the whole picture. But at least more than a few like... It's like they have about five jigsaw pieces out of a thousand piece puzzle. Do you know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. They can't so you put can't the whole thing together with, with and that. definitively say this is what happened because they don't have enough. They don't have enough. Whereas if they had more, they don't need all of it. All of it would be ideal. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure they could kind of have a more definitive answer had they been able to discover more pieces or more, maybe even the black box, for example. Yeah. That would have been a major discovery. Yeah. Um, but um, Richard Godfrey, of course, has sent his research to the Malaysian government um, because as the owner of Malaysian Airlines, they are the only authority that can approve the resumption of the search. And the Malaysian government said that they are aware of Richard's research, but are waiting for more information. Hmm, brilliant. But I just don't understand them. Like, like okay, fair enough if he if he was, you know, sounding was just like some crackpot who didn't know but what he was done, on about. He knows what he's on about. He's done the research. You know, he's confident. He's an aerospace engineer and a physicist. Exactly. He's given the examples and shown how the radio wave, his theory works, and showed, and like, without using the satellites, he made the flight path and it matched up with the satellite, but also gave more information as to the locations and, uh, and things like that. So his flight path actually ended up better than, than the, the investigation teams, yeah. than the original flight path made by true satellites yeah. so I'm just kind of like is that not evidence enough that this that his you know theory that and, and his claim that he knows the area can be found mm-hmm. is very credible and should be taken seriously and should be enough to immediately launch a, launch a search absolutely 100% I'm um, now, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, however, is paying attention to Godfrey's research and as a result, they have commissioned an independent review of their own data to see if anything was missed in the original search. 
Um, so it's nice to see at least Australia are, are taking willing, it seriously. Yeah. They're willing to be like, okay, we'll look at like we might not be able to send out a search, but we're willing. But to we're willing to look at everything that we've we already missed, got. See if we can incorporate your data into this. Because I'm sure I, I I'm sure that it's not a cheap feast to take that on either to get all the staff needed and everyone dedicated Mm -hmm. to that and taken away from other cases as well so they obviously must see that they're that that it could be worthwhile and provide some information um now as well as this other global experts are reviewing richard's research and their results are apparently expected soon so i i I assume that would imply maybe sometime this year in 2022 if not early 2023 i'd hope um, and now, if there are enough positive reviews of the research, then it is hoped that the Australian Transport Safety Bureau will pressure the Malaysian government to reopen the search. Which would be brilliant. It would be yeah. brilliant. It would bring closure to the families. It would bring the victims home and allow them to bury their loved ones and get that bit of closure. Now, it's not going to bring them back, obviously. No, of course not. But it'll give them a bit of peace. But even like, you know, I'm also thinking, I'm like, okay... But it, as awful as it is it, they might not with oceanic drift and everything unless those people all those people are still literally inside the 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 plane the plane the wreckage the wreckage of the plane it's very likely that multiple bodies may have gotten taken away by oceanic drift mm. and could be anywhere yeah depending on what way the plane split in the water assuming it is in the water and that yeah. it's not with the Russians or the like, Chinese yeah, or, or the Malaysians you know, or the, the Harry didn't Americans. parachute out and meet his lover on you the know, boat. Um, and all these other interesting and somewhat wacky theories. Mm. No, Looking would, at you, Ian. Yeah. Um, I would like to think that the, the plane is intact enough that everyone can be found inside be found and get the closure, but obviously you don't But at least even sure. if they didn't recover um, all of the bodies of the people on board at they least if they found the wreckage answers. they would have a definitive answer that it did go down in the sea mm-hmm. they'd be able to hopefully figure out more so a conclusive theory um or even yeah. evident they would get the black and clear theory as to what happened aboard that flight so the case could be closed officially mm-hmm. with an answer and even if bodies weren't recovered um you know at least those families would still have some bit of closure and would be able to you know even do some sort of uh, and i mean probably a lot of them probably already have done some sort of memorial or service and themselves regardless of having Mm. the body or not it's just awful to think about really like it's such a massive loss of life and eight years on there's still no answers for the families there's no answers for like i'm sure a lot of the people on that plane were parents and had kids who we're sitting at home waiting for their mommy and dad yeah. to come home and it's just it's so heartbreaking like these are people's wives families. husbands parents exactly. children like they have people they had people at home waiting for them and that are still waiting for them and you know what and like it's like even even if there was someone on that plane that didn't have someone at home still waiting all, for they them they still justice. deserve justice for them yes exactly regardless of anyone else being involved um you know, it's just awful all around. Mm. And then, like, as well, there are the theories, of course, and, you know, these these are very, very, you know, it makes a lot of sense because it's not saying this kind of thing isn't about how, you know, the Malaysian government's behind it or anything necessarily, although those theories are out there. Mm-hmm. But that, obviously, the reason the Malaysian government are so, like, um, I suppose, coming across so opposed to reopening the search by not taking all this evidence, like, by knowing this evidence, by having it sent to them, acknowledging it but not doing anything yep, is a lot of people reckon it's because of the fact that if they find the wreckage and it is um proved to be like definitively proved to be the fault of either the captain or the aircraft 
then Malaysian Airlines is owned by the Malaysian government and They're all liable. those million dollar euro whatever lawsuits are filed against the Malaysian government. Yeah. So they're also saving I was thinking the government's earlier. bank account as well. Yeah, which is an awful thing to think. Um, but it does happen a lot more oh, yeah. than it should. Unfortunately, it's basic politics. Yep. Which is sickening. Yeah, it's disgusting. Like, um, But um, I suppose this is the part where we figure out what theory, what, what do we believe, like kind of mm. what's our... Um, I don't want to use the word favourite, but what's our, like, what do we think is our most feasible theory? Mm -hmm. Or what do we personally think happened to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370? So I initially started off kind of very firmly believing the mass hypoxia theory because I suppose that's what I want to believe. I don't want to believe, I didn't want to believe that the pilot had made this decision or even the co-pilot had made this decision. Um, but I think with all the evidence, it is like, as much as I hate to say it, it is probably most likely that that is what happened or that like, maybe there was some kind of malfunction with the airplane that like, we don't know about, but Mm. it's just, it does seem like a murder suicide to me. Yeah. And like, even like, I remember one part of the research that I had, um, and I was saying about how for the most part, most of it didn't seem like it could be a malfunction, but I think that was only referring to like the communication systems and the flight mm-hmm. path. Um, that doesn't mean nothing else on the plane malfunctioned, yeah. but I, th- um, but I think it just m- m- mostly points to the, the, that, those changes. Um, and like, I'm kind of stuck somewhere between those two myself yeah. because I'm like, you don't you know, want to believe like all the like everything I've researched and read and comparing them all up and com- and hearing what you've said, it kind of to me it does sound a lot like a mass murder suicide, yeah. um you know um a hijacking of sorts, and with the whole Penang thing, mm-hmm. I just find it dodgy that unless someone was trying to frame the captain, it's possible you know possible but I know. just find that a bit strange, mm-hmm. and then. But then with all the testimonies to his character and his online presence, so he believe. just doesn't seem like the type to do that. And yeah, people can snap, but like, I just, I personally find it so hard to believe that... That it, everything that seemingly it, was so perfect and then you just snap. Yeah, and just one day wake up and decide... Oh, I'm going to take a plane of 239 people, including myself, down. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't make sense to me. Because at the end of the day, he had a family to go home to Yeah. So it's because of all of that... That I would like to believe in the that I would like it to be the hypoxia theory. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'd like it for the plane to have landed, but, yeah, but of course, that would out be of the theories, scenario. I would have liked it to be the mass hypoxia theory, um, and I suppose as well, at least everyone would have just hopefully passed out and not suffered too much. Yeah. Um, but you know, so I I would have liked it to have been the mass hypoxia theory, but un- unfortunately, I do seem to think that it is A more lot of the evidence more evidently towards yeah. The mass suicide, mass, suicide. Well, not not mass, mass, mass murder suicide, even murder yeah. suicide, yes. But um, yeah. So, so I guess that's where where I where we stand on it. I guess yeah. we're both kind of the same stance on that one, really. So I suppose that is the awful, sad case of the missing Malaysian flight MH three seventy. Um, thank you so much to everyone who's listening. We're delighted to have you, and <laughs> we were so excited before recording oh, like, this podcast. Giddy bang, we were so absolute giddy. giddy bang. But um, yeah, no, it's 
great to get the episode going and mm-hmm. to get a start to things. And there's more to come. And yes, there will be more to come. We're already working on cases for the next few episodes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so join us next week yeah. for the next episode. And we look forward to... I was going to say seeing you then, but... More um, like burning your ears off. More like burning your ears <laughs> off, yeah. And, you know, if you like it and whatever I'm a host, podcast host you're listening to this on, um, leave us a five-star review. Um, of course. Of you know, course. of course. You know, the more five-star reviews, I'm assuming the more promoted we'll get on the store. So more people, not the store. The, the store. The <laughs> podcast store. What would you call it? I, I don't, don't know what know. to say. Host website? The podcast libraries, libraries, charts. I don't know, but I'm assuming if we get reviews, we're more likely to come up in them for other people to find the podcast. So, and also big thank you to everyone for the support so far on the Instagram Mm -hmm. and Facebook and so on. Um, We appreciate you guys joining us before we'd even properly started the journey. Yes. Um, So I guess that's it for this one. That's it for this one, Um, and we will speak to you soon. Exactly. Bye for now.